and welcome to Pod Rocket, the podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams to improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at logrocket.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pod Rocket. I am your host today, Paige Niedringhaus, and I am a staff software engineer at Blues. And with us today is our very special guest, Rachel Neighbors. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Paige. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. So maybe for people who are less familiar with you, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your past roles in web development. I come from open source. I did a lot of work with CSS and web animations and the Mozilla crew on MDN and with developer tools. And then I did a brief stint on Microsoft's Edge browser. Then I was on the React core team, built out react.dev and react-native.dev, the doc sites that people use to learn React and React Native. Most recently, I led developer education for AWS Amplify. Yeah, and I'm still very much active and at large in the developer education community. That's fantastic. And I have to say, as a React developer myself, your documentation has been something that I have referenced many times and come back to. So thank you for continuing to update that and improve it and make it what it is today, because I think it really is a great example of what every framework should aspire to when trying to help developers get familiar with what you can do with them. Let's talk a little bit about your experience of working on React, because as you said, you worked with the meta team for quite a few years. You were pretty instrumental in helping them make React a really household name among JavaScript developers. Can you tell us a little bit about how it was to actually work on a lot of the documentation as well as working on the code with them? I would argue that React was already a household name with JavaScript developers before I got there. One of the reasons I wanted to join the team is that I originally was getting into Vue because I really loved the built-in animations that came with Vue at the time. And I was at an inflection point in my life where I wanted to pick a new path forward. And it turned out that I kept hearing from women and minoritized folks that, you know, React was hard to learn, didn't feel like it was a place for me, didn't resonate with the community. And to be honest, I felt the same way. But what I noticed as I was pivoting and looking at different roles was that all the big fang companies and the six-figure jobs were React jobs. Vue doesn't have six-figure jobs associated with it usually, at least not in the United States. And the same goes for Ember and all these other communities that were really attracting the people I knew and admired. And I was like, that's unfortunate because from an intergenerational wealth standpoint, every person who's not adopting React and getting those big six-figure salaries is net losing out for all their descendants. So I was like, if I could just make the React community more attractive, if I could just make it a more inclusive place and make the documentation easier to understand so people don't have to spend 600 bucks on a course, which is out of range for a lot of people in the world, (laughs) that's an obscene amount of money in places like India. Democratize a great React education and make the React community a place people wanted to be from all backgrounds, then that was a really big lever I could push. So I actually, when I say I want to do something, I do it. I ended up on the React team and started with the documentation. Also put on Women of React Conf online during the pandemic, one of the first major online conferences out there. Did a lot of cool little things. I'm not sure I had the impact I wanted to have on the community, but I did have the impact I wanted to have on the way we teach React to people. 
yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even though you have since moved on from Meta, you're actually still giving a lot of talks about React and React Dev and React Native. So one of the talks that you mentioned in our show notes that's coming up is called Gateway to React and is about the React Dev story. So is there anything that you can share with listeners about what that talk is going to encompass or some little sneak peeks that you could share with us? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, there's the React documentary out there, which tells you all about all the engineers. You can think of iTalk as like the behind the scenes, how we built a better education experience for React. Usually, when I first got there, I always start with the community. I start with the real people. So I ran user sessions and I was just sitting and I'd be like, okay, so, you know, walk me through how you're using these docs. And it would take so long to go from the beginning to working in an app. It was like, well, if we just cut out all the spin up, all the configuration, if we just let people edit the code right there on the page, we can get them to hello world in five minutes versus 50. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up with building these interactive sandboxes, the code sandbox. This talk is a lot about that background. It's about the behind the scenes decisions that were made, the research efforts that went into it, both reactnative.dev and react.dev. A lot of the ideas that worked on React site were actually piloted on React Native, React Native site, and there was a huge community effort there too to roll out the changes. So it's a bit of a behind the scenes about the efforts that went in, how the two sites are connected, and how they change how people learn. As you're talking about making the documentation better, making it more accessible, making it easier for people to get started, was that something that Meta was initially on board with, or did you have to make a case for it that this was something that needed to happen in order for it to gain the followers that you're talking about, the people who maybe can't spend $600 on a course to learn how to set it up and get it all configured the right way? So this is a fun one. And this is one of the things I love about Meta. I originally had applied to be on the team thinking software engineer, but then I saw what was involved with the software engineering interviews and I was intimidated. By the way, I totally could have passed those interviews as was revealed later uh, when I started doing mock interviews internally. So never count yourself out, always aim high, and then you can always backpedal into a different role. I ended up coming in as a documentation engineer because I've done docs with MDN and technical writing, like I wrote a book. So yeah, it was an easy pass. It was an easy way to work with the team. And they were already thinking about redoing reactnative.dev because the community had cited poor documentation multiple times on GitHub as being a major barrier to adoption. Mm -hmm. So it was like, all right, spin this straw into gold. And I did. And then the React team was like, okay, now do ours. And Dan Aberbov on the React team was like, React Native, let Rachel go. We need Rachel now. And it was so silly. And I think originally Dan was like, this should take five weeks. It won't be a big deal. I was like, oh, Dan, Dan, I love you, Dan, but it is going to take more than five weeks. Meta actually just lets the engineers do what they think is right, usually, at least on the React team. It's very mm -hmm. self-driven. A lot of trust is placed in engineers to be smart. This is a little different from other fan companies like Microsoft and Amazon slash AWS. They tend to be more product management driven or like a product or a P person, product program project tells the engineers, these are the business requirements to deliver this. Right. At Meta, it's more collaborative. And the engineers are like, I think we should do this. And leadership's like, 
okay, that seems to make sense to me. And if the engineers say we need better docs, then we're doing better docs. That sounds fantastic. To me, especially for frameworks in particular, which are, yes, they're a product, but they're also for people to build things with them. That seems like a great way to approach it. So it's nice to hear that, you know, it came from the bottom up and people at the higher levels agreed that this was something worth worthwhile and worth investing in. I have to give the org credit for that. You don't always find that on corporate sponsored open source projects. Yeah, it was really great to see how community driven the React team at Meta is. That's good to hear. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your more recent roles. On the React team, you are more of an individual contributor working on the documentation and helping them get that community going and more inclusive. But then when you went to Amazon, you took on more of a TPM role. And I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit more about what that is for people who are less familiar with it and what it entails as opposed to a software engineer. So prior to big tech, I was just an engineer, mostly specializing increasingly on web animations, their APIs, the browser's rendering engine. It's really niche. You can't make money doing that. So I was like, I got to get a better job. And I got a program manager job at Microsoft. I'm still not sure what program managers at Microsoft do, which gets a laugh out of anyone who's a program manager at Microsoft. <laughs> but it, I think these P as I call them, P people at different large companies, it's unique in that these roles don't really exist in startups. They only start occurring in bigger companies. And they aren't engineering roles, but you still have to have a good technical sense about you to take them on. There's three different ones. And depending on who you ask and what company you're at, they mean different things. There's the program manager, there's the project manager, and there's the product manager or the mini CEO. Uh, project managers, ostensibly, they're logistics. If I'm going to use a wartime metaphor here, if you can imagine ancient soldiers of Rome on the battlefield, the project manager is like the logistics person, making sure that the food's convoy is arriving to the right camp, that the fortifications are being constructed at the next landing, that the scouts are going out in the right direction, and they give you dates. They're dates people, they're dates and deliverables. They are usually operating on a plan that may or may not have been put together by, if your company's large enough, a product manager, which is the mini CEO. They're the person with the vision. They're like the general. They're being like, yeah, we're going to invade and conquer this forest here because it's a good source of timber and we're going for it. And we're going to fight the war by water because it's an island or we're going to use elephants this time because they'll be able to navigate the forest really well. And then you've got program managers. Program managers are people who organize programs of efforts. So for instance, if you have, in this case, there would be the program for exercising, the program for battle drills, the program for up and coming lieutenants to further their skills, the program for training the youngsters and the program for officers, wives and their dwellings. So they manage more systems of people. It's a little harder to describe. Now, the funny thing is, at Microsoft, program managers are like product managers. At Meta, product managers are more like project managers. And at Amazon, all these P levels are like the general calling the shots. So that was the role that you moved into when you joined Amazon, was to be a product manager or a program manager? 
Actually, I was a principal technical program manager. And at the principal level, they all start to really bleed into each other at AWS. We were considering product, we were considering program because we wanted to do docs as a product for Amplify. And in the end, though, because of the nature of how the person leading documentation has to activate so many other people, I'm not going to write the docs myself. Like, I could write one book, but I'm not going to write five. It fell more into the program manager list of abilities and capabilities. So that's the one we went with. So let's say that you were currently an individual contributor at your company, that you were a technical lead or something along those lines. First, how would you decide that program management was something that you wanted to be in instead? And how would you go about trying to achieve that? What would your advice be? First, you have to make sure your company is large enough because at smaller sizes, pretty much engineers do everything. Engineers or the occasional project manager. And the vision comes from your directors. It's only in really big, like once you get around the 1,000 to 3,000 number of people, that's when you can start talking about, I might like to do this more. The key factors I've noticed when I meet people who've transitioned into program or product management is they like having impact, but they don't necessarily like managing people. Mm -hmm. They want to manage people's time. They want to manage people's efforts, but they don't want to hire and fire. They don't want to be a mentor and grow people. They're more interested in getting things done. That's program management tends to be, I want to tell the troops where to go. But I'm not going to actually be the person leading them into battle. Yeah. So you'll be like, hey, engineers, we got to deliver these features. Go for it. Product management. For this, it's a similar thing. People have vision. Maybe they were engineers, but they didn't like that someone else was always telling them what features to build for the customer. Maybe they're out there, they're doing a little bit of in-the-field UX, and they're feeling like, yeah, you know, I, I am more passionate about what the customer experiences and where the product goes than I am about actually building the product. So that's one of those signs. If you find yourself really advocating hard for the user... And you might think, maybe I should be a user experience designer instead. But the difference is that a user experience designer or a designer, they are building for the customer. But it's a product manager is actually defining what to build, what direction the product should go in. So sometimes UX people end up in product management too, product designers. Mm-hmm. So was that one of the things that kind of drew you to Amazon? Did they offer you the opportunity to have a larger impact and make a greater swath of AWS and their documentation your own? It was a really unique challenge because part of Amplify is open source. Mm. The Amplify Libraries product is built and maintained in the open. And this is a little unusual for Amazon. Amazon does have some open source uh, things like open search, for instance. But for the most part, AWS, its documentation all lives in its own AWS docs, etc., but because Amplify's open source nature was unique, there was no real way to latch on to the AWS documentation process. Amplify moved too fast. It was built from source. You know, it all existed on GitHub. 
So we had to build our own processes around that. I had this little website that was built in Next and a small team of two documentation engineers. And I came and expanded the team a bit, brought in a content team from another side of the company to start working on building out new learning paths, et cetera. It was a much bigger challenge. I remember when I looked at Amplify, I was like, this is five products across five platforms. We're going to need a bigger boat. This is a real big challenge. But because of that unique situation, the way it was an open source and it had five products across five platforms, my experience with React Native meant I saw this not as an impossible challenge, but as something that could be delivered to with the right team and the right processes. It was a lot of fun. I remember setting up this really great double approvals process so that engineering teams could technically review PRs to content that affected their product. That was a really wonderful little piece of program management that I worked on with our engineers to create this process and then hook it into the engineering on-call process. This ensured such a good quality control on our documentation But that's an example of some of the challenges you face when you have so many teams building a product, so many products, and you're documenting them outside of an existing system. It's sort of a a greenfield thing where it's, oh my gosh, we got to do things a little differently because this project is a little different. (laughs) It sounds like a very difficult problem to solve, but you had a lot of good experience and history up till that point to help you make the right decisions for it. So that's fantastic. You talked really briefly about getting into big tech back in 2016, and you've since moved through some of the biggest names in tech. So we're in kind of a weird place in tech right now. The economy is not the best that it's ever been. Inflation is slowing down, but it's still much higher than it was before. And there's a lot of layoffs that are happening. Do you have advice for people who are going through those things or who are concerned that their jobs might be next? I mean, It's a scary thought, and I think it's on everybody's minds at least a little bit. So do you have any advice for people? I don't want to be a fear monger, but I I want to say you're not safe. No one's safe right now. These layoffs are different from layoffs that we're used to, and they're not based on your performance. Layoffs are different from performance-based firings. Those are usually part of a cyclical cycle. They happen like every so many months. You probably have reviews and performance improvement plans. Layoffs are indiscriminate. They're usually done by spreadsheet. You're not being considered as a human. So the nice thing is it's nothing personal. It's not a reflection of you. But the sad thing is there's nothing you can really do about it. There's no performance improvement plan that you can ace. There's no manager you can convince or appeal to. Mm. So a lot of people have one of two reactions. They've got this kind of freeze or fawn reaction, which is where they're like, oh, that's I haven't heard anything about layoffs at this place. I'm fine. Or I'm working really hard. I'm safe. Wrong reaction. doesn't matter how hard you work. If you're going to get laid off, you're going to get laid off, which is why I would say, first off, burnout (laughs) does not serve you in this situation. And appealing to power, that kind of fawn response of, I will try to ingratiate myself to these powers. Your manager doesn't have any control over this. He he or she doesn't want to give up any headcount. But when the mandate comes and they have to, So the other set of responses is this kind of fight or flight, which is, I can't believe it. I'm seeing everybody getting laid off and I'm so upset and maybe I should be looking for a new job too. The fighting response is not useful because you can't 
fight a non-entity. It's a spreadsheet. What are you going to do? Go into Excel and delete all the roles? Like, yeah, it's an algorithm. You can't hit back at an algorithm. Wish you could. There's so many I beat up. But (laughs) the best response is to sit tight, wait for your layoff package, set boundaries, don't burn out. There's absolutely nothing worth burning for right now. It's not going to save your job. That's been predetermined. And the other thing is flight. If you see a better opportunity and you're not feeling safe where you are, you should probably just take it. But sitting tight is a good idea because even if you do get laid off, you can negotiate for a package. It's better than completely getting scared and quitting without anything lined up. Like Just wait it out. Be calm. Be patient. It's hard. Events like this can have a huge impact on people's careers. Graduating into a climate like this, what do you do if you can't find a job? I have some ideas on that. I would actually love to hear your ideas on that because I've talked to a lot of early career developers and I have a non-traditional background as well. I was in marketing and advertising for five years and then went to a coding boot camp and completely changed my career path. But I graduated from that boot camp back in 2016, and the market was good then. I was able to land a job immediately, and I just kept moving up the ranks from there. So I would love to hear what your advice would be for people who are new, who are trying to just get established when there is so much competition, because like you said, nobody really feels very confident that their role that they're in is going to continue to be a role that they'll be in. Yeah. And one thing I I hear a lot is after getting laid off myself was, you're going to land well. You have a lot of, you look at this passport of teams that you've been on and your skills, you'll be fine. And that's actually my initial gut reaction is always, oh, you think so? Because a lot of roles are being shut down right now. I'm in a very niche developer education space. And those roles are just winking out like so many candles in the night. And That means there's more people. More people are competing for the same number of a shrinking pool of roles. And I've seen some people far better than myself get laid off. And every time that happens, I'm like, that person has to find a job before I do. So we had a similar situation way back during the Great Recession. I made the mistake of working my butt off through that. That's when I entered the tech community. Mm Mm-hmm. My advice from working during that time, then looking back and realizing, oh, I could have gone to school and gotten health insurance through a school. Oh, man. Or I could have contributed to open source and ridden some of these things like WordPress that started around that time. Periods of employment and stagnation are when open source tends to really take off. The best ideas happen when people who are laid off are like, yeah, I think I just want to build something cool in my spare time. And you want to find those projects and see if you can get involved in them. Make some bets with your contributions because getting in with an up-and-coming platform, framework, tool, AI tool early is something that you just can't reproduce later in your career. Dan Abramov, what would have happened if he'd been you know, focused on working a day job versus poking around with React? So there's nothing wrong with poking around if you can swing it. If you haven't gone to school formally, now is a great time to consider it. Or if you've gone, maybe you want to up it, you know, go in for a second degree or something. Because the industry is shifting. We're moving more towards AI and ML. And 
that is going to really change things, if not in the next two or five years, definitely in 10 years. And this could be the pause necessary in your career to move in that direction versus skilling into a bunch of roles that will become increasingly, I wouldn't say less relevant, but let's just say that you would have to reskill at some point anyway. So maybe you can just get ahead of that and get into something even cooler. So when you can see the writing on the wall a little bit more clearly, like the economy that we're currently in, what's your advice for getting yourself prepared that if I'm not here tomorrow, things still keep running either personally or professionally for my job? First off, no matter how good things seem, unless you're at OpenAI right now, consider yourself at risk. Just consider it because a lot of these layoffs are not performance-based financially by the company. They are in vogue because everyone's doing them right now. So don't expect rational behavior from anybody right now. You can be irrational. There's a couple of things that you can do. I already did them because I was looking at blind and I was looking abroad. I was seeing people like me getting swept away at other companies. And I was like, yeah, let's see. Uh, Likelihood that this will happen to me. Always be thinking about the future. One thing I recommend is that you talk with a financial planner. Go ahead and do that now. Find out like how much change you'd have to make in your life to have about six to 12 months of runway. I expect we'll see a correction in that amount of time. And, you know, you got to expect at least six months to find any good job that's not, you know, a windfall or you making a hasty decision that you might regret. Mm-hmm. It usually takes that long, expect it to take longer in this climate. So talk to a financial planner, look at your expenses and things and see how much runway do you need to be saving right now? What would you have to drop? Create a little emergency scram plan, just like a nuclear power plant. It's also good to create like a laundry list of the assets that you have that won't show up in a financial plan. We're the friends you can rely on to watch your dog if you have to travel for an interview, counting your blessings, the things that you have or have access to that you wouldn't normally. We usually don't think about our friends and our family as assets or resources we can call upon in a time of need. Yeah. But surprisingly, they are. Even your cat that comforts you is worth putting in that list because that is something that's going to be there for you in your hard times. Also, like for this kind of career go bag, I recommend writing your goodbye post ahead of time because it's much better to write that when you're in a expansive mindset versus a terrified mindset. Yeah. And it should reflect all the great work that you've done and that you're proud of. This will get you thinking about the work that you're excited about, the work that you want to make sure that you deliver in a timely fashion, et cetera. It's really good for prepping you for that interview mindset. And also just really appreciating the moment that you have with these people and the things that you've been doing. So writing that goodbye letter, celebrating people, sort of like writing your obituary makes you really appreciate the now and what you want to be. Mm-hmm. Write that ahead of time. If you can't write it ahead of time, put it through ChatGPT and tell ChatGPT, make this like 50% more positive and professional. (laughs) And yeah. And also like it's a good time to start talking with colleagues about exchanging mutual letters of recommendation on LinkedIn. 
while you're still in that good vibes and you're thinking about all the stuff that you've been doing, it's a good thing to do. And you can get ahead of all of this. You can do it today. It's not going to impact whether or not you keep your job. None of what you have just talked about costs any money. It just takes a little bit of time and like you said, putting in some thought about what you're doing, what you want to be remembered for, and what kind of an impact you want to make at the place that you're currently at. A financial planner might cost you a bit of money, but I do recommend if you can swing it. Yes, that's money well invested. (laughs) So as we're talking about how to transition or how to be ready to transition out of your current role, tell us what you're excited about in 2023. What are some of the things that you're really looking forward to that listeners might want to know about where they might be able to find you now that you've moved on from Amazon? One thing I'm really excited about is catching up on the state of animation in the community right now. I would love to say that a lot has changed since I stopped going deep on animation about six years ago to begin my Fang journey. But I got to be honest, it seems like they were saving the best for right now because all the good stuff is coming out. I look back at the web animations API. I'm like, did you release scrolling timelines yet? It's coming. It's coming out now. Page transitions. Oh my God. This thing has been trying to get off the ground for over a decade. And it's finally here in Chrome under a flag. There's a, a lot that is changing that I'm excited about and I'm excited to get caught back up in it. I'm not going to be a web animation niche specialist, but I do playing around quite a bit with what you can do with animations. And I know everyone is talking about React server components, but I got to be honest, I find them really boring. (laughs) And I, I think, at least back when I was on the React team, I think that the React team was very yeah, these should only be really important to people who are building frameworks, et cetera. But everyone's very curious about them. But that's not the thing that's exciting. For me, I am excited about off-screen rendering because it has huge implications for how people experience projects that are done with React. Let's see. You can find this on react.dev's blog section. Uh, They've listed it in the same post as the one that talks about the compiler and server components but I'm really excited about this. It's basically, it's a feature that allows the server to pre-render screens and things in the background. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of immediately swap inable when you transition or animate that content in or the person navigates. Now this is pretty tricky stuff to do, but I love it because it, Chrome has been trying to do a lot of these things behind the scenes for people, sort of anticipating what page people are going to go to next, preloading that information into a cache so that when people click the link, it just loads super fast. But there's some stuff that you can only do in the UI layer, like tabbing. And one tab contains a lot of stuff that's rendered on the server or in the edge. And so moving that to the UI layer, it's just so exciting. They've piloted this on React Native projects, and it's gone really well. So it has implications for mobile as well. But the idea is that we could get a very slick mobile animated experience in web apps that has just not been possible in the past. And so I am excited about off-screen rendering, super nerdy. And the (laughs) post itself was like, we don't think that individual engineers are going to be excited about this. This is more like something framework people. I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know. I think maybe it is exciting for people. (laughs) 
Absolutely. I've definitely dealt with my fair share of animations in web development, and it has been very painful for so long, even with the great React Spring and the various libraries that are out there to make it easier. So having this be built into React from the start, I mean, it would just be such a step forward in my opinion. It would really make a lot of things possible that just aren't possible with how we build today, Mm -hmm. even with the different APIs that browsers make available to us. Yeah. And if you could push through CSS Houdini while you're at it, that would be great. Is it still on the, is it's still waiting in the wings? Oh my gosh. It's still it still is and I don't know if it'll ever get out of the wings unfortunately. It's such a cool idea, but yeah, it just hasn't quite gotten the support that it needs. React, React off-screen rendering, web animations in general. Are there any conference talks that people could potentially see you at? I think people will be listening to this a little too late to catch my Render Atlanta How to Survive a Layoff talk. I'm only going to give it once, so you're going to have to go watch the recorded video on YouTube. But you could also catch it because it's a part of a book I'm writing. I'm writing in public. You can read it on wigglygoose.substack.com. <laughs> I'll come up with a better short URL. I called it Wiggly Goose because being a wiggly goose is, I used to raise geese and they're always getting through holes in the fence to get into the pasture they wanted. And I'm like, darn you, wiggly geese, always getting into trouble. But a wiggly goose gets into trouble and no fence can contain them. That's been my kind of engineering and leadership mindset of if there's a fence, you can find a way around it. You're a wiggly goose, gets into that (laughs) green grass. So at wigglygoose.substack, you can actually read a lot of things we're talking about here, formalized. If you're worried about layoffs or you've been impacted, you can have a peek. And there are other things in that in that book that I'm writing about how to survive your FANG career without a CS degree or an MBA, including, you know, how to react to organizational change, which can be very scary. There's going to be organizational change now too. So give it a look. As for actual conference talks about the work that I did with React Native and React, you can catch me at React Brussels, React Summit NYC, and React Berlin. So I will be seeing the Atlantic Ocean very shortly. Fantastic. Rachel, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. It has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you, Paige. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. 